Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books and African Studies a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Sarah Katz, a postdoc at Duke University and the host for this episode. Today, I'll be speaking with Dr. Moses Achonu about his new book, Emirs in London, Subaltern Travel and Nigeria's Modernity, which was published by Indiana University Press in 2022. Dr. Achonu is the Cornelius Vanderbilt Professor of History in the History Department at Vanderbilt University. Emirs in London is his fourth book. Dr. Ichonu, welcome to the podcast. Glad to be here. So to start, I'd like to kind of give you the chance to kind of introduce yourself a bit to those listening. How did you become uh, interested in history and kind of how did you come to focus on the history of Northern Nigeria and kind of what was the intellectual journey that kind of brought you to the topic of Northern Nigerian Muslim aristocratic travel to Britain? Well, thank you. Um, so I would say that uh, I've always been fascinated by um, the texts of Africans who, you know, uh, somehow portray themselves in their actions and in their speeches as authorities on, you know, the world of the white man, as I like to call it, right? So that has always held a fascination for me um, because growing up in Nigeria, we were introduced to the texts of... uh, you know, European explorers, as, as, as they were called, you know, back in the days, you know, European explorers, we, you know, we were taught uh, about the Mungo Parks, the John Burtons, the David Livingstones, and, 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 you know, as a kid growing up in Nigeria, going to primary school and secondary school, and then uh, going to the university, we were always told that uh, these people discovered certain things in Africa, in different parts of Africa. So this narrative of discovery <clears throat> always stuck out to me, always uh, fascinated me. So I think it was during my undergraduate days uh, when I began to question that narrative of this exclusivity of European discovery in Africa, this idea that only Europeans could discover Africa or African uh, African. Um, phenomena on on natural um, sites and so on and so forth, right? So 
that's for me that's where it started to be honest with you um and then from that initial skepticism about this type of narrative i began to explore um the i would say the repertoires of africans who as it were were doing the kinds of things that these european explorers pretty much were doing in africa uh, so i said you know w- w- one thought that occurred to me was you know the audacity <laughs> you know in a in a in a post colonial setting or even in a colonial setting for some groups of africans to present themselves as authorities on the world of the white man as people who were exploring the world of the white man right who were seeing who were commenting on the flora and fauna of europe who were authoritatively and confidently uh, pontificating on the character of the white man and um, on the reasons why the white man did certain things and so on and so forth so essentially these people were covering the same terrain that this the european explorers had covered earlier and so for me it was quite fascinating that the audacity to return the gaze as it were to reverse that gaze and to set yourself up even as a subaltern as a colonized subject to set yourself up as someone who knew the white man and who could translate and interpret the world of the white man to um your fellow nigerians or your fellow kenyans and so on and so forth so once i began to encounter some of these narratives of people africans <clears throat> who had traveled to the colonial metropole and who came back and you know were authoritatively discussing uh the world of the white man in 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 its different facets and we and wanted recognition as people who had uh, the authority and the facility with the language um and the idioms of how, of 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 you know european culture european ways of life i was drawn to that um however i just i you know as you know careers can take very weird turns and you start being fascinated uh, with one thing and then or somehow you get led in a different direction so by the time you get i got i started doing my dissertation at the university of michigan where i was a graduate student I was uh, totally researching something else that became my first book and that was uh, a topic that was totally removed from this fascination that I had because it was um, economic history the history of um, the impact of the great depression on northern nigeria but the geographical setting is the same right so because I was fascinated by this group of emirs and aristocrats from northern nigeria who were engaging in these travels to britain and so i still kept encountering them in the archives even as i was researching this other project even my second book when it came time to research my second book i still kept encountering this narratives of travel to the united kingdom to britain and you know and and i still you know in in drips and drops i, I still kept encountering these texts and these narratives in the hausa language and i was doing a bit of collecting at that point i was just collecting them and putting them aside <laughs> you know hoping that one day i would come back to them and that's that's essentially how this book began by the time i finished my i would say my third book um i i, I pretty much had enough material to begin 
this exploration in earnest. And of course, I had to do a lot of reading, secondary reading. But once I got back to the field, and I, you know, I, at first I thought it might be two articles, maybe one or two articles. But uh, I began to find more of these kinds of travel narratives written in Hausa language, written in English language, published uh, in the local Hausa language newspapers and some of the English newspapers in northern Nigeria. And it just fascinated me and I just kept on going. And I, I, I think uh, at some point I just knew that this would have to be a book. It, has, it had to be a monograph. And that's uh, the path that led me to this book. It was that initial fascination with this group of Africans who had the audacity to, as it were, ride back to the empire, to explore the world of the empire, to engage in this metropolitan ethnographic uh, exploration, as I theorize it, right? And then, and then to come back to northern Nigeria to set themselves up as authorities on the world of the white man. So that, that was just amazing to me. So. So as you've indicated, the, the backdrop for, for much of this book is colonial northern Nigeria, um, particularly its political elite. Um, so for people listening who are maybe you know unfamiliar with Nigerian history, what aspects of this historical period do you see as kind of most key for understanding the importance of this sort of metropolitan um, travel by the emirs um, to Britain? Well, obviously, you know, when you are talking about the production of these kinds of uh, narratives, narratives about the colonial order, as it were, you know, you have to also talk about not just the writers, but who they are writing for in terms of the audience, right? So I think this the, the growth of this genre, of this um, genre of metropolitan travel writing, uh, coincided with, and in fact, depended on the growth of literacy, literacy in the Romanized sense of it, right? Because there had been a tradition of Arabic and um, Ajami literacy in northern Nigeria prior to colonialism. And that was even, that was, that continued and was still vibrant in colonial times. But the rise of, you know, the culture of reading and writing in the Roman texts uh, and, and, in, and in very secular form, with the rise of secular schooling. So the growth of that, that, that culture of literacy helped to create an audience. And that development occurred, I would say, between the 1920s when you know, these emirs and aristocrats began to uh, travel to Britain and the 1940s. So that roughly 20-year period was quite critical because uh, in that period, they emerged in, in northern Nigerian public sphere. They, they, they emerged a group of northern Nigerian writers who at first were writing for themselves and they were reading each other's work, you know, it was quite quite incestuous to begin with. But then, it, you know, they branched out and the audience expanded to include, you know, regular northern Nigerians, men and women, who were literate in the... In the in the Roman in the Roman sense of it, and they could read and write in um, uh, Hausa or English, but uh, using the Roman uh, alphabet and script. So that 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 that's what created this um, this uh, connection uh, on the one hand between travel and the production of these texts, right? And for me, this the story in this book ultimately 
is, is it's two stories coming in coming together converging it's the convergence of this uh growth of literacy at this critical moment of um, northern nigerian colonial history and the determination of these emirs and aristocrats who were traveling to britain to articulate their impressions of britain to articulate what they had done and seen and heard and um, experienced in britain uh, by you know telling these stories to a local audience a local northern nigerian audience mostly in the vernacular in other words their insistence on translating the metropolitan world of uh, the white man to a local audience, right? And for, for me, it's the convergence of those two stories, uh, the growth of literacy, the growth of this culture of reading and writing, um, and its extension beyond the aristocrats, right? Beyond the aristocracy. Uh, and then, you know, this the story of travel to Britain, uh, the texts that were produced out of these uh, metropolitan travel experiences. So your book uh, provides many rich descriptions of you know different travel itineraries undertaken by various emirs, and we'll get into some of the kind of the concepts or larger questions they raise in a bit. Um, but I thought it might be kind of nice to give listeners who maybe have no idea what this sort of travel would have been like um, to give them just a sense of what a typical trip entailed. You know, how long did it last? What were the different types of activities that the emirs engaged in, um, and so on? Yeah, there, there were there were different uh, uh, strands of this travel, uh, but for me, uh, each of them had a, a special quality and you know special character to it. And um, one kind of travel was, you know, um, we just took the emirs and um, aristocrats directly from northern Nigeria uh, and, you know, meander through all kinds of territories and uh, in all kinds of uh, sovereignties, colonial sovereignties of that time, because they had to go through French colonial territories. So they had to negotiate and navigate all of these uh, questions of uh, colonial jurisdictions and sovereignties. And so they had to do all of that. But uh, one, one kind of travel took them through that process uh, by ship and by road, first and then by ship and then ultimately took them uh, uh, you know they would go through modern day Chad and Sudan and then Egypt and take take a ship to Spain sometimes to France and then from Spain to France and then ultimately to Britain so that was the direct route and then another kind of travel that some of the emirs and aristocrats engaged in was to combine this uh, travel to Britain with uh, the pilgrimage to Hajj, you know, they would uh, combine those two trips. So some of the emirs uh, did that a few times where they would travel by land, again, take the same route, uh, the Chad or Fort Lamy, as they used to call, call it back then, to Egypt, uh, to Sudan, through Sudan to Egypt, and then uh, take a ship uh, to sometimes to to the to the to the Hejaz uh, and to perform the Muslim pilgrimage, and then take another ship maybe to Spain to France. Uh, uh, sometimes they would come back all the way to Egypt, and then uh, you know sometimes the route was quite circuitous, and uh, you know and then but ultimately find themselves in Britain. 
And then sometimes on their way back, they will pass through, they'll take the same route or they'll take uh, an alternative route or take a detour. But that's essentially how they would travel to Britain. Uh, an average stay, and the average duration of uh, stay in Britain was, uh, I would say, six weeks. Some people stayed uh, a little longer. Some of them stayed, um, uh, you know, spent a shorter amount of time there. But uh, typically, they would stay for like six weeks. And we can go into what they did there later on. I'm, I'm, I'm anticipating questions along those lines. But... Uh, they, they typically would um, engage in leisure. This, were, this was leisure travel, and this is what makes it so fascinating for me because, you know, these, these were aristocrats, subalterns, to be sure, right? Um, but people who were privileged in all kinds of ways. Um, one of those ways was that they had money. So, you know, they could finance their own trips, which they did. But once they found themselves in London and in other British cities, they indulged uh, in so many metropolitan tastes. They had curiosities that they wanted to fulfill. Many of them would uh, actually demand to be taken to certain sites and to do certain things. Uh, they wanted to see horse racing, dog racing. That was a very popular pastime that uh, they indulged in while in Britain. And, uh, you know, they had numerous uh, official types of events, teas and uh, pageantry with uh, British officials and sometimes with British royalty, British aristocrats would invite them to receptions and dinners and uh, show them, take them to the movies and we'll take them around. And, you know, and then, they, of course, they had the obligatory perfunctory colonial minder who would uh, take them to do some of these things and make sure that their their needs were met, and uh, who would be their official guide. And um, but they, they they did quite a lot. They squeezed in a, as much as they could in those six weeks or in five weeks sometimes. Uh, but one popular one thing that they, uh, probably the most popular thing, as you can imagine, uh, for these aristocrats was shopping. Shopping. They just like to shop a lot, and sometimes. Uh, even though there was an itinerary uh, that they were supposed to follow, there was supposed to be this routine of daily tours of special sites because, you know, the, 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 the metropolitan hosts wanted them to see certain things. So they had this, some of the, sometimes they would have a trip planned out to the English countryside to see some dockyard, to see some airport, uh, to watch planes take off and land or to go to some train station to go to some show really some entertainment venue uh but sometimes the emirs would uh, protest actually and say you know today we just want to shop so i uh, you know that came up a lot where they would um take them take themselves off the official touring itinerary just to be able to have a chance to shop and uh, they would buy things luxury items cars you know, luxury cars were very quite popular. Some of them bought uh, throne chairs, I guess, to enhance their prestige in their courts, you know, in their palaces. They bought a lot of jewelry, bought a lot of clothing for wives and relatives, gifts. Um, Baby prams. Bought... That was the most surprising thing in yes, your book, maybe, yes. was that there was this yeah. obsession with baby prams. Was not expecting Absolutely. that. <laughs> That was that was probably the most popular thing that I that in their shopping carts, as it were, <laughs> proverbially speaking, <laughs> every one of them uh, bought a pram, and uh, 
that was quite, uh, and you know, I, I had to unravel that one in the process of researching it because I was wondering, like most people, why, why, right? Why were they buying prams? And uh, so I, you know, interviewed a whole number of people, including uh, a former Emir of Kano, who told me that as a child, you know, he was uh, pushed around in the palace in a pram that his uncle, who later became Emir, had bought for him as a present when he was a child. And that people would uh, watch him as he was being pushed around in the pram. And uh, in the Hausa language, they would say to him, So meaning, here's the prince uh, being pushed around in his uh, car. Basically, they likened it to a car. Kike is a bicycle, a bike, but also a car, because uh, it had four wheels and it was being wheeled around. and. Uh, so, you know, it was uh, quite fascinating hearing stories about these uh, prams, but the prams were quite popular in their shopping adventures, but they, they bought other things. They bought weapons, they bought guns, they bought, because some of these emirs and aristocrats, you know, typical aristocrats that they were, were hunters, were avid hunters, and, you know, they hunted game, so they wanted guns for that purpose, they wanted ammo, uh, they bought luxury cars, uh, but quite ex- expensive things. Uh, but so they they did some official things. You know they would be chauffeured around in this long convoys of expensive limousines um, and moving this quasi-official circuit, right? Because they had, you know, you could even call it uh, almost like a diplomatic bubble that they traveled in while in Britain. Uh, but at the same time, I think that became suffocating for some of them. So they would always ask for time to do their own things and shop around and go to expensive stores like Harrods and Goldsmiths and buy stuff that they wanted to buy. And some of them also wanted to visit friends, friends, colonial officers who at this point had retired to Britain or who had not retired but who were holidaying but you know, had homes in parts of Britain. You know, they had forged these friendships with them when they were serving in their emirates or districts so they would ask for time to go visit them and they would um, uh, go to those places and sometimes even spend the night in the homes of these uh, this, this, uh, colonial friends of theirs. So they, they did a variety of things while in Britain. Um, so as you've kind of, you know, already noted a kind of overarching theme in the book that kind of also kind of relates to your discussion of print culture um, is that the emirs and others were kind of, in a sense, producing colonial ethnography in reverse. So kind of, in other words, you know, rather than British anthropologists traveling to various colonies to understand, you know, the colonial other, um, and who then sort of translated that understanding for a British or more broadly Western audience, which of course included uh, colonial uh, bureaucrats. Here we have northern Nigerians traveling to Britain, in part to learn about the British other, um, and translating their experience back to a kind of a houseophone um, audience. So could you kind of expand a bit more on kind of how you see emirs being like anthropologists? And if British colonial ethnography was used in the service of colonialism, what were some of the uses of these ethnographies by elite Northern Nigerians? Well, that's, that's a great question, uh, fantastic question. 
for me, uh, I think when I think about this um, reverse ethnography, at the root of it for me is um, what I theorize as um, colonial curiosities, right? And traditionally, we've associated these colonial curiosities with, uh, you know, the white male European explorer, right? Who preceded the, the establishment of colonial rule, who, you know, there's a whole cohort of them starting from the 18th century to the 19th century who came and, you know, explored and wrote all these books about different parts of Africa, the natural world of Africa, the cultures and peoples and so on. These classic colonial ethnographers or neo-colonial ethnographers. So these people were satisfying a kind of curiosity about Africa that existed in themselves, but also in their societies in Europe. And they they were also, I would say, uh, satisfying a curiosity that was that had a utilitarian sort of undertone to it, which is how can we better know these different parts of Africa, the different African peoples, so that we can dominate them better, so that we can rule them better, so that we can understand their institutions and understand what makes them tick and so on and so forth, and so that we can better, you know, better colonize them. So, but what I'm arguing, I would argue in this, as I argue in this book, colonial curiosities went both ways, right? It wasn't just the white man, as it were, who was curious about the ways of Africans. Uh, Africans too, if you were an African living through colonialism, living through colonial domination, you also were curious about the world of your oppressor, as it were, the, your, the world of your colonizer. Why is uh, Mr. Lancaster, who is the district uh, <laughs> commissioner or the residence of Kano or Wudil, you know, in northern Nigeria, why does he act in the way that he acts? Why does he ask us to do this? Why doesn't he allow us to do this? Why does he insist that when we, you know, perform some task, we have to do it in a certain way? Why does he frown upon this or that behavior? So, you know, that curiosity, the, the desire to know the white man and to know why the white man does what he does in a colonial setting was pretty strong uh, in, in African communities. And so that, found it, that, that curiosity is what drove these um, emirs and aristocrats to try to go to the metropole to find answers. And once in their minds they had find, found the answers, right, I think they saw themselves as people who were well-placed, but people who also had an obligation to share those answers with the House of Phone audience in northern Nigeria. The second part of your question is critical, which is the what's the utilitarian value of this information? Because we, we just I just talked about the utilitarian purpose of the the, 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 the texts and narratives, right? produced by white European explorers who were acting in service of colonialism, who paved the way in some cases for colonial conquest, as we all know, right? For for these emirs and aristocrats, obviously the purpose was not to dominate <laughs> since they didn't have, obviously they didn't have the means, you know, didn't have the, the intention or the means anyway to go out there and colonize the Europe or to... So that was clearly not their purpose for gathering this information. 
However, my argument is in this book is that it conferred having this knowledge of the white man or, or, or putting yourself in a position where you are able to claim this legitimacy and authority as someone who knew the white man's world gave you uh, visibility, prestige in a colonial setting. That's number one. Uh, for Muslim Northern Nigeria, it had a religious dimension to it. Emirs and aristocrats were already uh, religious role models and religious leaders. And so these were people who provided moral examples. And so for the Muslim, the regular Muslims, they looked up to these emirs and aristocrats for examples and for cues as to how to navigate colonialism, how to relate to colonial commodities, how to relate to colonial goods, colonial practices, and so on and so forth, without you know, running afoul of Islamic injunctions without uh, abandoning your faith, right? So I think that was that was another way. You know, if you know, these aristocrats are going to Britain and are engaging in some of these activities and bringing back some of these commodities and goods and flaunting them. So I think it was a signal, a signal to the regular Muslim colonial subject that, you know, maybe this is the best way to uh, reconcile your Islamic devotion to the realities of colonial modernity, right, without compromising your faith as a Muslim. But finally, the, the, there was even, the, I think the, the, the idea, the, my argument about utility, the utilitarian value of these uh, texts and these travelogues uh, goes beyond that, goes beyond this symbolic terrain. Uh, I think this information was useful even in the quotidian uh, relational space of colonialism where, you know, the more you knew about the white man, the more you knew about the white man's society, I think for a lot of um, colonial subjects in northern Nigeria, the better they would be in avoiding the excesses of colonial violence, colonial oppression, you know, the, the negative sides of colonialism. If you know why someone is doing something, you are more likely to understand where they are coming from, you know. And therefore, so it helped... This information helps northern Nigerian colonial subjects to escape the worst of colonialism. But not only that, in some cases, to ingratiate themselves with colonial officials and colonial uh, colonizers on the ground because they knew their weaknesses, they knew their soft spots, they could uh, exploit those weaknesses and those soft spots. They knew what, what they liked to see, they knew what uh, how to flatter them, you know what proved flattering, and so on and so forth. So it had that value of mitigating, helping people who read this text to mitigate some of the worst aspects of colonialism, but also to somehow, in some cases, uh, access some of the benefits and some of the goods um, of colonialism, right? And, and ingratiate themselves with colonial authorities in ways that other people might, other colonial subjects might not be able to do. So there was a real uh, value to this text uh, that in some, in some cases you could say is, uh, this value is analogous to the value of the text produced by white European explorers, uh, with the only difference being obviously that the Northern Nigerian travelers, these aristocratic travelers, uh, didn't have an agenda to dominate or to oppress or to colonize. 
Another kind of overarching theme of the book is that the travel by emirs sort of involved a bit of performance on both sides. So you have the British hosts and travel planners uh, were sort of being involved in what you call a performance of imperial hospitality, um, which, uh, you know, as you put it, was sort of matched, if not surpassed, by an elaborate and equally contrived performance of gratitude on the part of the visiting aristocrats. Um, so what about this sort of dual performance do you find to be kind of most significant? That's, that's, that's great. Um, I think that the emirs and aristocrats who were making these trips, I theorize them as masters of imperial protocol in the sense that, you know, in an imperial system, uh, when you are the subordinate partner in this imperial project of indirect rule in northern Nigeria, you kind of knew your place. You knew your place in this hierarchy um, and in this alchemy of power. And so the northern Nigerian um, uh, emirs and aristocrats, when they would travel to Britain, what was fascinating for me was that the imperial hierarchy often got reversed so that in this metropolitan space, the emirs as guests would uh, have colonial officials, former residents or residents in different provinces who were in the colonial hierarchy superior to them, they would have these uh, colonial officials uh, serve as guides to them and be at their beacon and call, right, and, and, and perform menial tasks for them. For instance, they would ask uh, some of these uh, guides uh, uh, to go pick up stuff for them from heralds, you know, that was often, that was done frequently, to go pick up stuff from them from goldsmith or from some other high-end store. And they, the colonial officials would oblige because they, they were their guests. So this reversal, this performative quality, you know, the, the, the colonial officials were obviously trying to show the emirs and aristocrats that, look, when you are in my country, <laughs> you are my guests, Forget about the hierarchy back in northern Nigeria, where I'm your boss and you have to report to me, and I get to tell you what to do. But you know, in this space, just see me as your errand person, as your errand boy, as it were. And so that's that's obviously is that it's it's deliberate, it's contrived, it's performed on the part of the emirs. You know, they took advantage of it, of course. You know, they sent them on errands. They made demands. Some of the demands were actually quite uh, difficult. Go get me this, go get me that, and so on and so forth. But at the same time, the emirs knew what to say in particular moments during these trips and what not to say, right? When they would go out, when they, when they got invited to the palace of the king, the king's palace, when they met the king, they knew how to behave, they knew what to say. When they got invited to parliament, they knew what to say and what to do. When they got invited to tea by the mayor of London or mayor of uh, other British cities, they just knew what to say to open doors. When they would visit factories, which they did quite often, factories producing consumer goods that they were already familiar with in northern Nigeria, they knew how to use, how to turn on uh, a certain uh, charm of gratitude. They knew how to perform this imperial gratitude to open certain doors so that when they made requests, 
to the CEOs or the managing directors of these companies, these uh, British companies, uh, the companies often obliged because they had requests. They said, you know, can you set up a factory in my Emirate? Can you bring this or that to my Emirate? And so they were able to use this element of hospitality to access metropolitan benefits and goods. But I think the performance goes even deeper than that because I think, I argue anyway, uh, but this, this could be up for debate, but I argue in the book that each side knew what the other side was doing, that this was all, this was mutual performance that was intelligible to both sides, <laughs> you know, in the sense that it was part of this process of maintaining this partnership of indirect rule between British colonizers and Northern Nigerian House of Horn aristocrats to keep the imperial project alive. That, in the first place, was one of the things that... Um, one of the things that drove these trips, that kept it going anyway, this idea of courtship, this idea of cultivating the partners, assuring them, right, on the part of the colonizers, of British colonizers, this idea of assuring the emirs and aristocrats that we're on, we're on your side, we will always be by your side. And this idea of we can, let's invite you over here so that you can see how we live, so that we can dazzle you a bit, so that we can introduce you to the razzmatazz of the empire, so that we can introduce you to the might of the empire. And that's probably one of the reasons why a lot of the places that uh, the British officials had in their daily touring itinerary were military outposts, military um, spaces like the dockyard, the armament factories, and the Royal Air Force uh, uh, bases, and so on and so forth. They wanted to uh, perform that uh, British might to them. They wanted to leave Britain reassured and impressed that they were in a partnership with a powerful partner and that um, they were backed by a British establishment that was almost uh, omnipotent. You know, it was this performance of, of omnipotence, right? But the emirs, on their part, even, if, even though they had questions, they had questions, and I, as I discussed that in the book, they had critiques, of a certain aspect of British life. They had questions about why they were being shown certain things and why the, Brit- the British were obsessed about certain things, specifically the military aspects. They had critiques. But they couched the critiques again in idioms and in vocabularies that almost sounded flattering. So that it's that skillful way of performing uh, imperial gratitude and using that as almost a cover to disguise what 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 it is that you don't quite uh, you are not uh, crazy about in this society, what you don't like in this society, it's that very deep performance that really fascinates me and that I, I try to emphasize and highlight in the book. Yeah, and the the fact that the the sort of courtship was so tightly monitored by the British sort of like belies a little bit. You know, we can kind of see that they are indeed aware that some of this gratitude is a show. Like the fact that they even would read some of the Emir's diaries afterwards, I found very kind of striking. Um, yeah, as yeah, yeah I mean, I, that's absolutely. And they they knew they knew every every side knew what was going on and. 
And the British knew that the emirs were, you know, concealing their, their true feelings in certain encounters. And um, it, when the emirs, after the trip was over, the emirs would write back these effusive letters, right? This, they would engage in these effusive epistolary exchanges about, oh, we had a wonderful time. We had the best time of our life. Thank you. They would write these multiple letters to all the places that hosted them. Everyone that had them over for dinner or tea, they would write back, we, you know, with the gift, a leopard skin or something that was local that, you know, uh, that was associated with northern Nigeria. They would write back and, you know, enclose this gift. And they would effusively and, you know, uh, superlatively praise their host and said, you know, uh, and to everybody they wrote, that was the best time. That was the highlight of the trip. So obviously they couldn't, you know, <laughs> they couldn't, they couldn't have had the highlight of their trip in, with every event. So, so I think you know, but but I think that raises the question of the. the so, like you said, like you rightly said, there's a in one of the chapters where uh, they almost uh, the Europeans, I think, in a way, they wanted the feedback, but they also wanted the feedback to look a certain way. They wanted the feedback from the emirs, so that's why they would have them in this. After the trip was over, they would meet with them in this uh, what looked like a focus group, uh, you know, to use a modern day analogy, and they would ask them these questions, you know. So tell us, what do you, what did you like about all the touring? What was your favorite site to see? What was your, what was your favorite thing to do? You know, uh, what did you like the least? Uh, if you were to come back, if you, if you, if you, if you had to come back. What would you get rid of in the itinerary? What would you not do again? And what would you do more of? You know, uh, just tell us. Uh, you know, and those kinds of. And I think those were questions that were quite scripted, obviously, and they were scripted in a way that would elicit certain answers. But what was revealing to me was in the secret reports, when you know the colonial officials would say, "Well, you know," they would say, "Well, this is what the Emir said." But uh, we are not sure if these are his true feelings <laughs> regarding such and such. So I, I think uh, it's that multi-layered, uh, multi-layered narrative exchange, that multi-layered production of uh, different colonial scripts, right? Uh, one for the public, one for the private realm, and one for official the official realm. It's all of these different layers of exchanges of texts being produced uh, that that are fascinating because every single party in this uh, whole exchange, the emirs included, knew that the other party was putting on a show, was putting on a performance, and yet they kept it going because the whole idea was, you know, I'm not going to rock the boat. Uh, You know, it, it functions. The relationship is being lubricated with this performance, and it keeps it going, it keeps the partnership going. The emirs have, can pretend that they were awed and shocked, they were dazzled by these sights, and that makes the host happy. And the host, you know, even if he has some doubt as to the sincerity of the feedback, can transmit that through the chain of uh, colonial command uh, to his superiors, and claim success, you know, we've uh, successfully courted and reassured our northern Nigerian aristocratic partners. So uh, everyone is happy, ultimately. Yeah. 
As you've kind of alluded to a bit earlier, you know, despite the unequal power dynamics and colonial racism, both of which you, know, you acknowledge in detail in the book, you're interested in sort of the effective bonds um, between the Northern Nigerian elites and British colonial officials, um, which you kind of refer to as colonial kinship. There is a particularly striking uh, scene you provide uh, between Emir Diko of Katsina and Lord Lugard, um, sort of the key official of Britain's colonial conquest and colonial rule in northern Nigeria. And they are at Lugard's home in Britain, laughing over tea about how if things had maybe gone a bit differently, they might have killed each other during the period of colonial conquest. You know, from the perspective of 2022, this seems like a kind of bizarre uh, exchange, um, but you find it insightful for sort of understanding the relationship that Northern aristocrats like Dico had with the British. So how do you kind of read that exchange and how does this tie kind of the larger theme of elite metropolitan travel? Yeah, that, that particular episode for me, uh, when I first encountered it, quite frankly, I had the same reaction as you did. I, I thought it was weird and Honestly, I thought, wow, what's going on here? Uh, it was a cringe-worthy moment for sure. Um, and I, and I, but as I thought about it and as I, as I reflected upon it and I, I said to myself, one of the favorite things, you know, apart from buying prams, of course, you know, that the MES did and aristocrats did in, uh, was they would always ask, you know, their guides to make room in the itinerary even in the discussions prior to the trip, they would always ask that some room be created in the itinerary so that they could visit Lord Lugard, Frederick Lugard, who was now retired and living in the village of Abinger. I don't know if I'm saying it right, but I uh, was living in some room outside of London. That was one of their favorite things to do. So for me, that I had to unpack that, I had to explain that. Why was that their, one of their favorite things to do? We can call it double consciousness. We can, you know, invoke all of these theories about, you know, false consciousness, double consciousness. But for me, I just, you know, and I, and I, and I consider those theories, but I found them unsatisfying, you know, as frames of analysis for what was going on in these encounters these emirs and uh, aristocrats going to have tea, laughing it up with uh, Frederick Lugard, who was the very guy who oversaw the conquest, the violent conquest and destruction of the Sokoto Caliphate. The caliphate that gave birth to their titles, that you know, gave birth to their status as aristocrats, right? Without the caliphate, they were inheritors of the caliphate. You know, their very legitimacy derived from the prior existence of the caliphate and whatever was left of it at that point. Why were they fraternizing with this with this same person and laughing it up? And but for me, it was quite revealing. As I reflected on it, it became a revealing moment, and it, it, I think a keystone in my analysis in the sense that. Um, Especially, you know, let's let's start from the encounter that you talked about. For me, that was um, that was quite dramatic. Diku uh, had been the official who 
was sent by the Emir of Katina at the time to broker some type of deal or ceasefire or surrender with the British. Diku had been one of the people who counseled against armed resistance, who said, you know, the British are at our doorstep. They are right at the gate of Katina. They are ready to attack. They are commanded, uh, that's uh, Lugard's troops. How do we respond? So he goes there and uh, he negotiates this peaceful surrender, basically is what it was. He allows uh, the troops of Underlove Lugard to essentially, without firing a shot, occupy Katina. And here they are reliving that moment. And this was a fundamental moment of the loss of sovereignty. This was the original moment where Katina lost its sovereignty, its identity, the, the, the aristocracy, and even the dynasty, the ruling dynasty was undermined. This was the, this was the foundational moment of, you know, you could say as Chinua Achebe, the great Nigerian novelist used to say, this was the moment when the rain started to beat the people of Katina, right? So this should call for lamentation. This moment should be called for mourning and lamentation. The Emmy of Katina in 1933 should not be laughing at this very person, with the very person having tea with him and laughing with the very person who oversaw this uh, tragedy, right? This tragic moment of uh, the erosion of sovereignty. But here he was laughing with him and having tea. So for me, he spoke to, and, and they were making light of it. If they were making light of the moment, for me, it spoke to the level of intimacy, you know, intimacy in the theoretical, you know, and uh, analytical sense that existed between the two men. But also at that point, it spoke to me, for me, it spoke to the fact that the relationship and the bond that existed between them had come a long way. It spoke to the maturity of this partnership between British colonizers and Northern Nigerian aristocrats as partners in colonial business, right? Which was mutually a partnership that was mutually beneficial. So I think for me, I had to unlearn and suspend all my theoretical orientations towards these types of relationship, colonial relations, this, which often we understand them as adversarial, as in, in negative and adversarial terms. And we expect subalterns to behave in, in, in in certain ways, when they encounter the people who took away their sovereignty, to destroy their kingdoms and states and so on. And if that's not happening, then it kind of throws our analytical lenses out of whack. And so I had to recalibrate and understand this moment as indicative of some type of bonding, some types of intimacy and kinship. And, and kinship, obviously, you know, you know, it's it's problematic, like you said, because of the power the dif- power differentials and the power dynamics involved. Nonetheless, I use this uh, bromide, this analytical bromide of kinship, to articulate what was going on uh, as a way to draw attention to the fact that uh, it happened on both sides. That both sides were cultivating each other. The Northern Nigerian aristocrats, somebody like Diku, for instance, was happy to cultivate the British and to invoke the British and his connection, more importantly, to the British to as a way to ironically consolidate his legitimacy at home because he was somebody who had no legitimate claims to the throne. Essentially, he, had, he was an appointee of the British 
And, uh, you know, they started a new dynasty. They had to destroy the old dynasty to bring him to power. So he was uh, beholden to them in certain ways. Uh, but at the same time, he saw himself as someone who helped Katsina by brokering peace with Frederick Lugard from that initial encounter that they had by choosing not to fight back, not to go with the military option. He saw himself as someone who ushered Katsina into a new era of modernity. And, and uh, maybe we can talk about, you know, all of his repertoire. He saw himself as uh, he, he acquired a reputation as someone who brought modernity to Katsina, the schools that he attracted to Katsina, the polo clubs, uh, and so on and so forth. And, and he had so many firsts. Katsina was the first to do this, was the first to do that. Uh, he introduced many uh, of the institutions that the British wanted to see in the different Emirates. Uh, he was an enthusiastic um, modernizer in that sense, in that colonial sense of the word, uh, he was. Uh, and and but but there's a there's a there's a subtext to that, and the subtext is this kinship that developed over time, when the pain and the anguish of that initial moment of colonial conquest had passed. I think it many of these aristocrats were eager to enter into the orbit of the British, because that was beneficial to them. That enhanced their prestige. It enabled them to have access to colonial goods and colonial practices. Um, it, it opened the whole new world up up to them, and so that that it's that relationship that the comfort that they felt with each other that culminated in that encounter that you framed in your question between Lugard and Dicko. So I wanted to really get into it and understand it more. That was my aim in bringing it up to them. Periodically um, throughout the book, you note that uh, the metropolitan travel by northern Nigerian elites was occasionally the source of scorn. Um, so, for example, you note that emirs like Emir Diko, um, who accepted colonial medals with sort of neo-Christian names like the Companion of the Order of St. Michael, you know, to give one example, that they got backlash for this by some Islamic clerics. And then later, in sort of the late colonial period, the more radical party of the northern region, the Northern Elements Progressive Union, advocated for a more adversarial relationship um, with the British. So I'm wondering if you can kind of re reflect a bit on kind of what limits existed in terms of the power northern elites could derive from their connections with Britain, particularly once Nigeria becomes independent or is, it's clear that it's about to become independent um, and northern Nigeria is sort of increasingly tied to other parts of the country. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, the... the, 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 the... The intriguing part of this story is that um, the aristocrats uh, who engage in this travel and who returned to tell all these stories, yeah, you know, they had their own audience, but there were there were clearly northern Nigerians who were not happy with them, like you rightly said, who found first of all the that there was this fundamental pro profligacy that accompanied the trip, they, they were, that they were essentially wasting money, wasting taxpayers' money, because, of course, their wealth came from partly from tax collected. And, you know. 
So, you know, why would you waste, you know, just spoke to this vulgarity and this immodesty as, as far as these radicals were concerned and this, these critics were concerned that the emirs and the aristocracy represented and the aristocracy, you know, for them was an institution of oppression aligned with the British. And they, of course, they are, some of their resentment was also religious as well because it wasn't just the radicals, it was even some of the Sheikh Gumi, Sheikh Abakar Gumi was a conservative uh, Islamic uh, Muslim scholar and cleric who also critiqued the emirs as somehow failing to represent Islam and um, by accepting this neo-Christian awards and medals from the King of England. And he raised the question, you know, of, you know, would the King of England accept, uh, you know, an award named after our prophet or any of uh, the holy prophets in Islam? And that was a rhetorical question. But, you know, in terms of, you know, what, uh, the, the, in the, the, what, what was the need for them, really? That's basically the question. What was the need for them? Um, in the late colonial period, Northern Nigeria was uh, making a transition towards independence. I think every, in the post, after the Second World War, everyone pretty much knew that the march to independence had begun. It was a question of how fast that march was going to be. That was the main question. But uh, everyone knew that uh, independence was at, was at hand. So the urgency and pressure of independence brought new thinking to bear on this culture of imperial travel to the metropole because northern Nigerian officials and rulers, especially in the 1950s, when the North became semi-self-ruling, and they had a, you know, a regional legislature, they had a regional prime minister, they had all these institutions in place, I think they began to realize that they didn't have uh, many educated personnel, that they were lagging behind the South, right? The Southern Nigeria, in terms of Western education. And that's when they began to think about this existing culture of travel to Britain as something that they could uh, leverage and parlay into uh, solving this educational lag, this closing this educational gap, Western educational gap between the North and the South. They didn't want a situation where independence would come and um, Southerners would be working uh, in northern Nigeria as teachers, as clerks, and would essentially be in charge of the northern Nigerian bureaucracy, because that was the case in the 50s. So they were racing against time uh, in to, to try to solve this problem, and they saw this pre-existing culture of travel to Britain and the relationships that they had built from it, right, as a way to address this problem. So that's when they recalibrated the travels and began to give them semi-official characters. They began to send envoys to different countries. And if someone was going, even the emirs at this point, once this, you know, if there was if they were going, the rulers of northern Nigeria, who were of course drawn from the aristocracy as well, the Sadauna himself, uh, Ahmed Bello, who visited Britain in the 50s multiple times and in the 40s as well. Uh, came from the aristocracy, was a descendant of uh, descendant of Usman Amfudio, the founder of the Caliphate. So when the emirs would visit Britain, they had a new mandate. They had a new capacious 
expanded mandate, which was to solicit for assistance, technical assistance, you know, in terms in education, in agriculture, you know, they would go to schools, they would go to... So the itineraries transformed from one solely focused on leisure to one that began to embrace uh, more official types of uh, engagement. They would go to schools, they would go to veterinary schools and ask for teachers to be uh, brought to, to come to northern Nigeria to teach people how to raise animals, animals better. They would go to places and towns to ask the mayors to try to recruit teachers for them, to train teachers in northern Nigeria. They would go to multiple institutions of uh, higher learning and ask that uh, uh, spaces be made for northern Nigerian students or admissions be granted to northern Nigerian students to come over to Britain and train. And they would make this plea in an urgent tone. And and so the travel to Britain at this time uh, became reimagined, I would say, and uh, reorganized accordingly to fulfill this new mission. Uh, in their haste to quote unquote catch up with the South, with Southern Nigeria. All right. So, as will be, I think, clear to listeners by now, uh, much of the book focuses on elite men, uh, which of course makes sense given kind of who the political elites in colonial Nigeria, uh, Northern Nigeria were. Um, but in your epilogue, uh, you bring up the story of Hajia Dadasarai. Um, so sort of who was she and kind of how does her story complement the story you've been telling of elite northern Nigerian men? Yeah, great question. Um, so when I when I started this research, one of the things that I just kept thinking about was, you know, where are the women in this story? Where, where are the women travelers? And ultimately, you know, I did uh, found you know stuff in the archives about women travelers, and I think it was from 1955 or so that women began to make these trips, especially after the trips were formalized as uh, annual events. I think they call them annual tours of Britain, uh, where they would take people from different provinces provinces in northern Nigeria. I think starting from 1955, they began to include women. But the women uh, had aristocratic affiliations as well because they were wives of aristocrats or officials in the northern Nigerian colonial bureaucracy. Uh, Occasionally, they would take uh, someone, a woman who worked in the colonial bureaucracy in her own right, who was a nurse or a teacher or something like that. But um, so so, so there are are some women in the story. Um, uh, Unfortunately, the, the, you know, obviously, they are not prominent in this culture for obvious reasons. But going to going back to the the, the Dadasari, Dadasari is a fascinating um, figure in the sense that, and I brought her up in the epilogue, and um, to help me to get back at this question of colonial kinship, how possible is it? Because her story is one of both connection and victimhood connection to colonial figures in the sense that she was a victim of kidnap. She was kidnapped by this colonial official. She was a victim of rape. Uh, She was underage. Uh, She was uh, held as a sex slave, you could even say. She was held prisoner by this colonial official who raped her repeatedly, violated her. 
uh, against her parents' will and her parents tried to get her back and, you know, he wouldn't give her up. And then he abandoned her. He abandoned her, went back to Britain to be with his family because he had, he was already married. And her child, in the meantime, she had a child with him and the child died. But then through him, she meets this circle, this, this group of uh, colonial officials, this European British colonial officials. And the, 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 the part that is fascinating is that she falls in love with one of these British acquaintances of hers. And because of that, you know, she resists every attempt by her parents and relatives to bring her back to her natal village. They organize a party to try to get her back. And she abandons the party. She just runs back to his name uh, is Rupert East, who was a colonial official uh, who had set up the Gaskia Corporation, who was very active and very well known in this um, colonial educational circle. He was a colonial educational officer. And she was very effusive in proclaiming her love for him and talked about how he was the love of her life, that she didn't know what love meant until until she met him, and they they lived together. I I don't think they were formally married. They were never formally married. But they lived together for a long time, and he got her a teacher who taught her how to to read and write. And he introduced her as his wife to his colonial official friends. And so she was moving in this circle, and then she began to work for Geskia. She became a journalist, and then later a nurse, all through his influences and everything. And so... For me, her story, for me, speaks to the fact of colonial oppression, colonial violence, and the extent to which colonialism could go to victimize Africans. So hers was an extreme case, a tragic, heartbreaking case of colonial victimhood. And yet, in her case, when presented with opportunities to escape from that orbit, she didn't take it. Uh, and if, in fact, she proactively and actively writes about her experience, she goes on to write extensively in her auto, uh, unpublished autobiography about how she actively, constantly sought to you know, be with this man, even when he went back to Britain, reconnected with his family, no longer wanted her. So I wanted to bring that story in to reassert this, what I was arguing earlier in the book, which is this idea that the colonial kinship is possible, even in the context of colonial tragedy and colonial violence and colonial oppression. It is rare. It is not common. It is not the dominant trope or theme of colonial relations, but it is possible, even in extreme cases such as that of Dadasari Abdullahi, uh, if it is possible in such an extreme case, I would argue, I don't think it's too hard to imagine it being possible in the case of the aristocrats and the emirs and these privileged people that, I, that I'm looking at in this book who derived benefit from colonialism who, quite frankly, because of their status, had been insulated from the worst consequences of colonialism, right? So it's not so hard to imagine it in their case, 
if it could happen in the case of Dadasari Abdullahi. So that's that's the first, that's the reason I, I find I find her story to be both tragic but also illustrative of the complexity of colonial emotions and colonial affective economies. Right, very mm-hmm. very uh, complex, and it it, it it forces us, I think, at a theoretical level, to question some of our taking for granted uh, frames for talking about colonial relations and talking about African uh, reactions to colonialism and African engagements with colonial institutions and colonial phenomena, uh, it forces us to recognize that there are many stories, right? And many uh, different varieties of reactions and engagements and African engagements with colonialism, uh, some of which might be cringeworthy, might be bizarre, might be difficult to understand, but they are no less valid as frames. Uh, because the story of Dadasari Abdullahi, for instance, it's, it's, it's a story that needs to be told in its own right. It's, a, it's a, just a fascinating story, a tragic story to be sure, but uh, maybe it can help us to get to, I think, what Fanon theorizes so well, which is this idea that colonialism was so brutal, was so violent, uh, colonialism destroyed people, killed people, I mean, it just traumatized people. But at the same time, there was this mutual fascination between the colonized and the colonizers, right? The colonizer, the European colonizer, envied, secretly envied colonized Africans, right? Because for him, he couldn't measure up to the masculine virility or other forms of masculinity of the African colonial subject. On the other side, the African colonial subjects, especially male African colonial subjects, right, uh, was, you know, had this uh, status anxieties, had insecurities about not measuring up to the standards of expected of a modern colonial man. So you had this, and you had this mutual resentment, but also mutual fascination. So the African man wanted to do everything possible in his power to be to be accepted and to be recognized uh, in a colonial society as the equal of the white colonial subjectivity or subject. The, on the other side, you have the colonizer, the colonizing male, who always was afraid that somehow the African male colonial subject was going to, to put it crudely, steal his wife and uh, had to do everything in his, in his power to prevent that from happening. And so, you know, so we need to go beneath the mutual antagonisms and the mutual, according to Fanon anyway, mutual resentments to look at what's really happening at, at, at a deep psych, psychoanalytic level, what's really happening. And so that psychoanalytic aspect is, is important to understand the, 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 the idea and the, the notion of colonial kinship that I'm trying to talk about. There's a psychoanalytic uh, element to these colonial relations that are not quite obvious, that are not even probably not articulated in archival documents that we need to recover and retrieve uh, and use this Fanonian frame to really understand, so to speak. Yes. In the epilogue, you you also uh, reflect a bit on sort of the post-colonial aftermath of these colonial explorations, as well as how the United States came to overshadow Britain 
as a site of courtship um, with the Western world, so to speak. Um, so can you share with listeners a bit of kind of how the history that you've been sharing with us about travel uh, during the colonial period has sort of impacted Nigeria's post-colonial history? Yeah, I think that a lot of these histories of travel to Britain, of uh, return, and the production of texts to encapsulate this experience, mapped onto late the, the politics of the 1950s and 60s, the politics of the Cold War, right? When um, the countries in the Western Alliance, most prominently the United States and Britain, and you know, to some extent Canada as well, began to actively, you know, this is something I don't say in the book, but because I don't have evidence for it. Maybe maybe they took a cue from Britain, from this earlier British courtship of this uh, aristocrats and emirs. But these countries began to actively and aggressively court the aristocracy of northern Nigeria, uh, the emirs, the aristocrats, partly because also at independence in 1960, this aristocracy dominated power at the federal level in Nigeria. Right, so they came to power. They were probably their path to power was smoothened by Britain. Britain wanted more conservative uh, successors, and they had their way. And the elites, the aristocrats of northern Nigeria, came to power. So, in in that sense, and I, and I think that the for the United States, for countries in the Western Alliance who were suspicious of radical rulers, radical politics in Africa who were suspicious of uh, radical nationalist politicians and intellectuals like Nkrumah and uh, Namde Azikiwe, they felt more comfortable with figures like the Sadauna and Madubello, like Tafawa Balewa, and other members of the Northern Nigerian aristocracy who came to power as Nigeria's rulers or leaders at independence in 1960 they felt like these were people that they could dealt with, deal with, that these were people who could represent their interests, people who shared uh, a certain temperament that they loved, people who were both progressive and, uh, you know, receptive to modern modernism and modernity, but at the same time were conservative enough so that they didn't want change too rapidly, which was precisely what they didn't like in uh, figures like uh, Namde Azikiwe, Obafemi Awolowo, Kwame Nkrumah, you know, Africans who, of the radical bent, they didn't want to deal with, you know, for obvious reasons, because, you know, they consider them communists and socialists. So so this, this, this idea that they had found people in northern Nigeria, this ruling elite in northern Nigeria, who represented this balance between modernity, progress, and conservatism, right? They, they, they love that. They also love the fact that uh, the Northern Nigerian aristocracy was actively trying to suppress the Northern Element Progressive Union, the radical wing of Northern politics that you mentioned earlier, that they too were suspicious of the kinds of politics that the, uh, the NAPU, right, represented, the Northern radicals represented. So, they, they found a kind of kinship, speaking of kinship, they found a kind of ideological kinship with uh, the aristocrats of northern Nigeria 
in that sense, because you know, obviously, the rulers of the United States, the leaders, also had this suspicion towards uh, radical politics, any kind of, and you know, we're doing everything that they could also within the United States, but also in the hemisphere to suppress that type of politics. So that connected that that they found uh, that their ideologies aligned. It it connected, and you know, I think they they found a convergence between. This, their ideologies, but also they, 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 they like the temperament of the northern Nigerian aristocrats as people who wanted change but didn't want it too quickly. People who didn't want to severe their relationship with the West, you know, but rather people who were actively cultivating more connections to the West, right? Even if this connection at this period in the 60s uh, was being courted for instrumental reasons, it didn't bother the, United, the leaders of the United States. For them, you know, they had new friends, they had people that they could trust, that they could do business with, that more importantly, people who could keep the radical elements in check on their behalf. So I think that was the basis of the United States becoming very active in courting the Northern Nigerian aristocrats. And of course, in return, the Northern Nigerian aristocrats finding themselves at home in the United States, in Canada, um, making all these official trips. You know, the Balewa trip is one that I discuss in the epilogue of the book. That was a very famous uh, trip where he met uh, President John F. Kennedy and was feted and traveled around the country, went to Evanston, to Northwestern University, actually came to Tennessee, where I live, uh, to Knoxville, uh, where he was uh, conducted around some agricultural establishments and taken on some farms and uh, wanted to and created some partnership that trip actually yielded a lot of partnerships uh, between uh, certain segments of American society and some uh, northern Nigerian institutions. Yes. So now that we've kind of gone through the book, uh, could you reflect on what you see as sort of the key interventions uh, your research makes in different literatures? Well, yeah, I mean, I think, uh, you know, one, one of them is that um, the, the, this uh, book, once again, uh, speaks to the capaciousness of the repertoires of African uh, intermediaries, right? Mm-hmm. People who stood in the gap, as it were, in colonialism. Um, I'm arguing in this book, one of the arguments, one of the interventions is that travel, travel to the metropole was critical to the mediatory repertoires of this aristocrat, this northern aristocrat who participated actively in indirect rule. Travel and the texts and experiences that came out of this travel was instrumental to them fulfilling their remit and their mandate as uh, mediators. You know, the materials and experiences and knowledge that they uh, derived and gathered from these uh, trips helped them to better fulfill uh, their colonial mission, to execute colonial tasks, but to become better partners for good or bad. It's not The argument is not about the partnership per se, it's about mediation, um, uh, mediation. The other intervention that I make is that, you know, we talk about modernity and modernization a lot in African studies, especially African colonial studies. And we talk about 
how different uh, groups of Africans participated or even uh, were instrumental to it. And, and I think I, I want to proceed that, that uh, you know, travel was uh, critical to Africa's participation in or engagement with modernity. The exposure that travel to Britain uh, brought to this group of aristocrats was critical. And there are so many examples in the book where the emirs would return and instantly they wanted uh, certain things that they saw in Britain, certain institutions, certain technologies, they wanted them to be replicated. They, you know, they just gave uh, an instruction. They would. Uh, they wanted certain things replicated in their domains. They wanted to build. Uh, you know, one, one one example is the trade fair, agricultural fair. One emir wanted to establish it, and he did. Uh, Diko was probably the most prolific in that respect, in the sense that he implemented a lot of metropolitan uh, modernist uh, projects. So travel was uh, critical. Uh, I would say to Africa's engagement or with modernity. The other uh, intervention that I make is uh, that I think when when we think about you know colonial, uh, I talked earlier about colonial curiosity. When we talk, when we think about colonial knowledge production, we need to think about travel and the texts produced by African travelers to European destinations as critical elements in that colonial knowledge production terrain, right? Simon Gikandi, the literary scholar, he talks about Africans, especially Western-educated Africans, being critical to the formation of uh, colonial culture. And I would agree, and this is one more example uh, of people who were not Western educated, people who had uh, another kind of education, for the most part, they didn't have any Western education, this aristocrat, but who were also able to create or participate in the creation of colonial culture in a very proactive and self-conscious way. So, okay, so that's uh, one, one intervention. And then, uh, of course, the other linchpin of the book is this idea of colonial kinship that I, talk, that I talked about, which, again, I think is... Uh, one way for us to think about the complexity of colonial relations, the complexity of uh, African reactions to and engagement with colonial institutions and policies and symbols. Uh, it wasn't always adversarial. And, you know, sometimes Africans proved to be skillful in using the colonial institutions, in navigating colonial institutions, uh, for their own benefit. And part of this was also not just for themselves, but also in propagating knowledge about the colonial metropole to their people, to their fellow uh, subjects, uh, as a way to also extend these benefits of colonial knowledge emanating from travel. So, I mean, I, I think these are some of the key interventions, right, that I make in the literature of uh, colonial studies, um, the literature of uh, colonial in the colonial history. Um, there's the final point I'm going to make is about translation. Translation. I see colonial travel texts, such as the ones that I analyze in this uh, book, especially these travel narratives. They are forms of translation, 
colonial translation or colonial interpretation because what the emirs and aristocrats were doing was that they were observing metropolitan phenomena, metropolitan peoples and cultures and technologies, and they were reinterpreting or translating this metropolitan phenomena into a Hausa vernacular idiom, right, for northern Nigerian colonial subjects. Uh, they were using uh, traditions of Hausa storytelling. They were using techniques, expressive techniques, developed in Hausa folklore, such as the use of idioms and uh, self-narration, uh, similitude, comparison, and even hyperbole, you know. They were using all these techniques derived from Hausa folklore, Hausa, the Hausa folkloric tradition, to translate the metropole to northern Nigerians in a way that they could relate, in a way that brought the metropole to them, because obviously they didn't have the means to travel to the metropole themselves. So this was an elaborate uh, form of colonial translation. Uh, often when we talk about colonial translations, we look at the works of interpreters, uh, the Hampati bars and, you know, colonial uh, translators in that literal sense. I want to expand the dictionary, as it were, of translation in the colonial context to include the cultural translation that these emirs were doing by taking colonial institutions and goods and phenomena and translating them, and in some cases, repurposing, repurposing these goods, right, these commodities, especially the prams. We talked about the prams earlier. They brought them to northern Nigeria and they gave them new uses. So this was an expansive repertoire of uh, colonial translation that I'm attributing to these emirs and aristocrats. Yes. Well, Dr. Achonu, uh, we've taken up enough of your time, uh, but before we end, I'd like to ask one more question, and that's what you're working on currently or what you intend to kind of work on next. Well, my, you know, this, uh, this uh, book... Uh, how this book has me talking about or discussing, you know, how northern Nigerian aristocrats were received and welcomed and feted and entertained, you know, uh, in Britain yeah, from the 1920s to the 1960s. Uh, so I think for my next book that I'm working on, my next research, it's it's uh, it flips the script a little bit, you know. I'm still looking at uh, aristocrats. But I'm looking at aristocrats who were not uh, similarly fortunate, so to speak. So my next project looks at uh, goes back to the moment of uh, colonial conquest and looks at the cases of certain African kings who were defeated, who uh, whose sovereignties were taken away, who were basically dethroned after their kingdoms were defeated or occupied by. British colonial forces. I'm looking particularly at the cases of four kings. Um, king Jaja of Opubu, King Prempe I of Ashanti, King Kabarega of Busoga in Uganda, and King Mwanga of uh, the Kingdom of Buganda. Uh, these four kings have something in common. They were both vanquished at the turn uh, of the century their kingdoms were occupied, 
they were they resisted they didn't accept british sovereignty for that they were dethroned arrested and sent into exile uh, on the island of uh, Seychelles for the three of for three of them and uh, for king jaji of opubo he was sent to the island the caribbean islands of uh, saint vincent and barbados so i'm looking at this whole idea of royal exile during the moment of colonial conquest so this book talks about you know uh, aristocrats who went into partnership, who were empowered by the British, who cultivated British patronage, who became partners with Britain. Uh, this next book talks about aristocrats and kings who were seen as threats to the new imperial order, the British imperial order, and for that reason were arrested, humiliated, and then sent into exile. And uh, one of them died in exile. Uh, king Jaja of Opobo died on his way <laughs> back from exile. And the other kings were traumatized by their experience of exile. So I'm trying to see what uh, royal or aristocratic exilic uh, trauma looks like. How can we write a history of royal trauma in this moment of colonial conquest? And finally, uh, I want to look. I want to revisit this moment of colonial conquest as a period not of not just of the loss of sovereignty, not just of uh, this mass imperial trauma, but one that fundamentally reshaped and uh, ruptured several aristocratic institutions and uh, royal institutions across British Africa. So that's that's what the next book is about. It's going to take me. Several more years, obviously, to research and write it. So, but I'm excited. Yeah. Right, certainly, the the larger geographical frame uh, sounds ambitious, but I, I look forward to reading it. It sounds quite interesting. Um, thank you so much for doing this interview. Thank you very much.